from Thomas Edison State University. This is Edison Soundstage. Good afternoon. Um, welcome to the Edison Soundstage, uh, the uh, public service leadership podcast of the John S. Watson School. This is our fifth episode, and today uh, we'll be speaking with uh, with the topic and subject of the volunteer fire service and challenges it faces. My name is Chris Schultz. I'm assistant dean uh, with the Haven School, but I'm also a volunteer firefighter uh, for uh, over 30 years. And so I will be participating uh, along with my colleague, uh, Dr. William F. Genoway, who is the chair of the John S. Watson School Public Service Curriculum Committee. He has a 12 year incumbent municipal elected official has served as fire chief in two um, municipalities. He's counseled on fire EMS around the US and is a former International Association of Fire Chiefs Volunteer Fire Chief of the Year. He serves as president of the Congressional Fire Service Institute and manages Pennsylvania Firemen's Association Recruitment and Retention Grant Program. Uh, he is a longtime collegiate educator, established author, and he is also an author of the monthly recruitment and retention tip of month in Pennsylvania Fire Magazine. So welcome, Bill. And uh, if you had anything to add to that, feel free. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you you uh, read that quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> to, 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 in today's challenging uh, Zoom world, uh, sometimes we have to do that. So, um, so again, today's topic is touching on issues in the volunteer fire service. So. Uh, let, Tell, tell us a little bit from your perspective, uh, and then we can have a dialogue uh, uh, as we go forward. Well, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here today to take part in this discussion. And, and I thought that a great way to tee this up would be to discuss the recent release of the National Fire Protection Association's Fire Departments in the U.S. study. And this is a document that's released every year where they attempt to do an analysis of what's happening in the United States. Uh, are there more or less fire departments? Are there more or less volunteer part paid and career departments? Uh, what are the transitions that are occurring and what's driving those transitions? And what are the expectations that might result from those changes? And it's been interesting because I've monitored this now for at least 15 years. And it, it's pretty consistent about a one, two, 3% transition every year from the volunteer system to something else. So if you look in the big picture at the 30,000 or so fire departments in the United States, about 1% per year moves from fully volunteer to something else. And that may be a merged plan with someone else. It might be a regionalization. It might be simple movement by hiring some people and being part paid, or it might be going the full gamut and hiring a full career department. And there have been four drivers that have been identified uh, in this transition. The first one is money. Um, the less money that's available for volunteers or the less money they're able to garner through fundraising, it tends to drive the organizations uh, to look for other ways to become solvent, for lack of a better term. And many times in doing that, the only way you can accomplish it is by going to the local officials and saying, with your handout, we need some help. And that typically translates to, into, well, what do we get? If we're going to give you the money, what do we get in return? 
And typically that's some kind of control or authority. And as a result, transitions begin to happen. The second comes with people. And I think we need to spend a little bit of time in a few moments talking about recruitment and retention. A lot of departments simply do not or cannot sustain their levels of staffing. And when you can't keep people in the organization, and there's so many reasons why, but when you can't do that, you have to look at alternative systems to guarantee that response to serve the public, which is the third point, which is service demand. As communities tend to grow, there's a threshold where you just can't expend enough time as a volunteer. And typically, if you're averaging two fire calls per day or a fire call and a medical call today, you, you do whatever mixture you want there. But at the end of the day, if you have to drop everything and leave your job, your family, dinner, your sleep, two times a day to go to calls, there's a breaking point. So typically around 750 to 800 calls a year is a tipping point for organizations if they don't have enough people to be able to get those, those volunteer systems uh, out the door. And then the last is uh, customer expectations. This has been a big one around the country. Uh, people are not like they were in the 40s and 50s and 60s where you grew up in a town, you got a job in that town, you got you stayed in that town forever and you died in that town. And that doesn't happen anymore. We are a very mobile society uh, since the 60s. And, and I like to say that one of the reasons we can't keep volunteers is the automobile. And I say that because when I was 16, I didn't have a car, but I could get to the firehouse and hang out at the firehouse. So um, the ability to, to get out and do other things uh, has generally taken away that young cadre of people who otherwise would be looking for outlets. They're no longer there. So that, that's one thing. But getting back to customer expectations and, and mobility. In today's world, if I move to suburban Philadelphia from Essex County, New Jersey, I have an expectation of what the service delivery model was in Essex County, New Jersey. And it's not the same in Chester County, Pennsylvania. It's not fully career departments. It's not significantly paid departments. It's an all volunteer department. And they may come from home, they may come from work and it might take them 12 minutes to get to the scene, which in a rural volunteer system is okay, but it doesn't meet my expectation. So people get, get uh, to get upset with that and they drive the change. And that change typically forces volunteer systems to become something different. So with that, uh, Chris, I know you spent time in, in uh, public service as, uh, as, as a municipal manager and so on. I would think you've seen some of those same things happening, if not others. Uh, yes. Um, in, in, in at least one town where we actually had to establish a second fire company because of issues with a first fire company um, due to manpower issues, leadership issues, and things of that nature. So, you know, you touched on these four drivers, but within those drivers, right, there are sub drivers, uh, leadership, uh, um, things, yeah. And then you talked about resources and, and, and the financial resources. And besides being a former manager, I'm, I'm, I'm also now a doctoral student and some of my research is in this area where my concern is with the trending down of volunteers, which to support the NFPA, right? Pennsylvania, two years ago, three years ago, also issued a report out, the state uh, Senate six report that talked about just Pennsylvania's issues with the decline. 
And so as I'm looking at that, my concern is that one, municipalities are not prepared for the cost of losing their volunteer systems and that transition from volunteer to hybrid to paid and what that could look like. Um, and and I, I say that both at the elected level and the community level, because I don't think in, at least in my travels, the elected officials really understand the fire service in some of their communities. Again, I, most of my background is in New Jersey, but uh, a lot of times the, the governing body really doesn't understand the relationship. And even though the laws are a little different in each state, um, in New Jersey, for example, there is control and supervision by statute, which means it's, it's the governing body's responsibility to provide the service. How it does it is a whole nother story. So, you know, so that's, you know, uh, money is not unlimited, right? We talk about resource dependency. Um, the volunteer fire service has long worked together in mutual aid type relationships and things like that. But I think I'm beyond that. I'm to the point now where at least in some of my observations and research, it may be time to break down municipal barriers and go to a, a more larger model, regional model uh, that's not municipally controlled um, to fill the gaps. Uh, and, 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 and because I still wanna maximize the volunteers that are available, but how do you supplement them, right? And how do you do it economically? And how do you share, right? That, that resource of financial and personnel and things of that nature. So that's kind of touching on some of that, that you brought to, uh, you, you brought up. So, so, but, it, but Bill, you, you've been around the country. I'm, I can only share my experience from a couple municipalities and counties in New Jersey and one county and municipality in Pennsylvania that I've uh, been a member. Um, you know, the, the trend's national, but you know, there are some really rural, rural areas and how, you know, how, and, and, and how do they deal with this uh, where they don't get the volume of calls maybe that we see in some other areas uh, and really you're paying for an insurance plan uh, in, in essence, by having the, the, the staff available. You're absolutely right, Chris. And uh, a couple of, of immediate responses that I have. Most elected officials really don't want to be involved in anything more than they have to be involved. If the fire department is functioning okay, and they're not getting a lot of complaints, they don't cost them a lot of money, it's okay because it's not getting any kind of traction in the general community. And let's face it, a lot of fire departments were caused because or organized because there was a major fire in their community and people became upset. Going back to the 30s, 40s, and 50s when, when there was a massive growth of fire departments in this country. But let's look at today and, and see what the realities are. And you know, as an elected official, if there's a department that's not causing a lot of headaches, not bringing a lot of challenges, uh, is, is basically doing okay with what they have, don't mess with it. it it's running okay. Uh, and that's the way a lot of elected officials approach this. And having been, having been in many states, it's not unique to Pennsylvania or New Jersey or anywhere else. They're all, it's all the same. Now, the di there's a distinct difference between rural and what I'll call suburban. And suburban can be anything from uh, the, the municipalities around uh, Harrisburg to the municipalities around uh, Philadelphia uh, or in New York City. 
that, that's a metro kind of, of area and suburban. There's a different expectation level from the rural area where a local little community of 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,500 people, they might be able to muster a truck. It's going to take them a little while. When that truck gets out, it's going to put that fire, it's going to at least control the fires. It's probably not going to get much bigger. That's the objective of the rural fire department. And I think that people have to understand you will not get the same level of service in a rural department that you will in a suburban department. So it's almost an, a, a risk level based upon where you live and what kind of a resource that community is able to muster. When you look at some of the things that, and, and you mentioned Senate Resolution 6 Commission. I was on that commission. I chaired the recruitment and retention committee that worked on that. And we found these kinds of challenges and ultimately made the recommendation to the state Senate that they needed to look at regional authorities, regional districts, and or some type of regional commissions so that these communities, like mine, for instance, I'm at the confluence of three counties. I cannot necessarily function well in a single county system. I am much better off being able to form a regional team, a regional authority or something of that nature and work with stations in three different counties to form a mutual relationship where we're gonna be able to cross the county lines and do the job that's needed with the right kinds of resources. That kind of flexibility needs to be built in. Uh, but maybe in Potter County, it's okay to do a countywide authority. You just can't tie the hands of the local departments or the local elected officials by saying there's a one size fits all approach to solving the problem. And it might be mergers, it might be consolidations, it might be regionalizations, it might be authorities, but you have to have the flexibility from a legislative standpoint and then from a, uh, an administrative standpoint to be able to do what's right in your area or your community. But I think that what you've done in New Jersey with districts and now with the ability to merge districts actually solves some of those challenges, particularly the financial one. Yeah, and and but let me inter, let me ask you this: You brought up elected officials, not not right. If if they don't know, things must be going well, right? Do you find though that some fire companies are not being upfront to their communities about their issues? There is a pride level; uh, it's culturally ingrained. Uh, we still see pride with uh, you know getting upset that the mutual aid company beat us to our own call. But I, you know, I have talked to some officials who, who haven't even kind of started the red, given a red flag, like there could be a problem coming. And, and, and what I'm afraid of, right, is we're going to become react, which we, we, we like to do in this, in a lot of areas in our country where we react, instead of get out in front of it and have, have a plan in place and ready to go, or at least have, have a parameter ready to go, whether it's a legislative fix, a regulatory fix, whatever. Um, but, but you know, there's, there's, you know, there's that cultural issue still that I, I see at times um, where the, the company is not ready to talk about, they're in denial. I mean, that's, let's just put it that way, right? They're in denial. Uh, you're right. That does exist. And I think that at least once a week, uh, there's a news article that comes out where there is a conflict that exists between a local fire department or a local EMS agency and the elected officials. And it could be countywide agency or it could be 
a local municipality uh, issue. And there have been a number of decertifications in Pennsylvania over the last year because of financial issues, because they don't have enough people to respond, and because these issues did not come, I'll say, in advance or upfront, but they were learned about after the problem hit the street, so to speak. Uh, and, and these are things that are identifiable. They don't, just don't happen overnight. And that's why when Pennsylvania established Acts 78931 of 2008, those acts were designed so that the different forms of government in, in Pennsylvania enabled the elected officials to identify who their service provider would be, and then to annually meet with the service provider to establish a plan that would enable them to understand the, the needs, the wants, and the expectations of the fire and EMS agency. And then the municipal officials could say, here's what we can give you, and try to strike a balance as to what they could actually accomplish to be able to meet the needs of the community. And if they couldn't meet the needs of the community, then they needed to find alternative resources and, and systems to be able to meet those challenges. Sad part is a, a lot of communities took that to mean, well, we'll take over the fire department and those, those meetings and those plans and strategic plans are not being effectively implemented. Great. So then let's move from kind of, even though we're cross talking about these drivers, you know, from the money aspect and, and that aspect to the, you know, the people, right? So the real issue is the decline in volunteers uh, and why, you know, you, you spelled out some of the research that, that you've seen. Um, do you find there's a, like, even if some of those things weren't there, would people volunteer? Uh, is that public service ethos still out there for people to volunteer in their communities, those that can? It's been interesting. Uh, over the last four years or five years now, uh, Pennsylvania Firemen's Association has had a safer grant to help local fire departments and EMS agencies to recruit and retain people. And it's in, involved both uh, what I'll call intellectual assistance to be able to help those organizations, counsel to them, as well as in some cases giving them funds up to $5,000 to support a local implementable plan that they would have to get approved from the association and, and the oversight team. That has worked extremely well and identified that there is still a willingness of people to volunteer. It is clearly not as great as it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. There are reasons for that, distinct reasons for that. In that era, you either had to have no training or maybe 30 hours of training. You could accomplish that in-house. You didn't need a piece of paper to go along with it. And when the fire whistle blew, you jumped on a fire truck or when, the whistle, or when someone called you and said they needed an ambulance, you jumped in the back of that ambulance and you did the best you could. And that was okay. It met all the expectations of the community. Well, that system's gone. And people now no longer volunteer with an expectation that they only need to go to school for 30 hours. If you're not willing to invest 200 hours up to, uh, into training, in many cases before you can get on a fire engine or an ambulance, then you're not going to do it. And there are a lot of people who simply will not make that investment today when they can make that investment into some other type of volunteer system that they can start work tomorrow. And a great example is if you go to a nursing home and you want to help people, 
They'll train you for two hours and you'll be out helping those people in a nursing home two hours later, not during COVID, but prior to COVID. Uh, you can do the same kind of thing with a, with a whole litany of, of organizations to help people, but not fire an EMS anymore. The certification process, as good as it is, has adversely impacted volunteerism. And, and anyone who suggests not really hasn't looked at, at the research and, and the literature. The other thing uh, that, that is clear is that this is a local issue, recruitment and retention. And it goes right back to the ability for the organization to market. And if they're not out there marketing all the time, then there is no way you're going to continually recruit people into your organization. You have to find out what members want in the way of benefits to be a member because it's not like it was before when you joined because you wanted a social environment or maybe you wanted to help the community. That still exists, but now people need a little bit of benefit and that depends on organization to organization. It's different in my community than in the community right next door as to what the members want in order to continue that, that volunteerism. But what I've seen now in, in five years in this grant program is it is clearly a local issue. There are still people available who want to volunteer Many people use this as a stepping stone or as a resume builder. That's okay. But you cannot expect people to join like you and I, Chris, and be lifers in this system from today to 30 years from now. That will not happen. So if, if, if in today's world, you can get somebody to at least cross that threshold and put the time in to get their certification, do you think, do you feel there are still agent fire departments that are still very rigid in their, their um, standards of what constitutes uh, response. So in our world, right, Bill, most fire companies have a percentage of calls you have to make to stay active, uh, we'll call it an active firefighter. And if you fall below that, then you may have your gear pulled or something, which I think is detrimental. And part of my research is trying to understand one, how volunteers in today's world, right, still how they, they, they work life volunteer balance. And then I, my, I think the research I'm driving towards is that fire companies have to really rethink that minimum basic. So if Chris Schultz, for example, says, it, I can give you 20 hours a month, the fire company has to figure a way to maximize that 20 hours a month between calls and training or some combination. And, and, and if I don't meet my 25%, then, you know, you're in a catch 22. You're going to, you know, you need the person, but if they don't make it, you're all, you know, you're holding them to a standard that may not be realistic for their quality of life and how they manage their life. Chris, that's a very good point. Uh, I use one illustration and I did not create this. I copied it from somebody. But my department uh, just last month changed their bylaws and their SOGs to eliminate those percentages. And we, we realized, uh, the, the, the board of directors realized that we were chasing an unattainable goal by trying to make people attend X percentage of the calls. Particularly when we run a stipend system where we have people that are spending 30 or 40 hours a week uh, in, in a stipend program, going to training for four hours, but never catching a call. 
because the calls are coming when they're not available or not in the station or in training. So they may have missed 10 calls or 15 calls or 20 calls that week, but they were still there more than those people that attended 10 or 15 of those 20 calls. So we decided that we needed to have a three-legged animal, so to speak, that was going to uh, comprise the performance expectations. And that includes a minimum number of shifts and or training and or calls that meet X number of total hours of service to the organization. Um, I, I didn't make that up. I, I copied that from another department, uh, but it makes sense because when you look at the number of people that were actually hitting 10% of the calls, uh, it dropped dramatically because why should I get up for an automatic fire alarm at four o'clock in the morning, which happens just about every day? Uh, why should I get up and do that if there's a four person crew in the firehouse that's more than capable of handling that call? No reason. So um, th that's a, a great example and you make a valid point uh, that is, there is no rhyme or reason to those old mired ways of doing things. And in fact, I'll, I'll just add this one organizations that still vote on members coming into the organization that still use some of those thresholds may actually be putting themselves into discriminatory practice situations. And they need to talk to their council about whether or not their bylaws actually place them in an adverse situation should someone challenge what they're doing and how they're, they're managing the organization. And I've seen many, many bylaws that haven't changed since 1980s, 1990s, yeah, I even found one back to 1932 once. So you, you really you, you really have to stay on top of the bylaws and make sure that you're matching federal law, state law, uh, whatever your municipality or, or your authority having jurisdiction is requiring um, and coupled with workers' compensation law. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. Yeah. Bylaws aren't, aren't a simple set of documents that you create and then keep forever. Well, and it's interesting because, I, as, as you may be aware, I teach fire department organization administration for an institution. And uh, those, when we talk about personnel, I actually default to you really, as a volunteer organization, need to run your organization like a paid organization. And if, if you don't have the resource, figure it out or ask your town if they have an HR department to piggyback and do something creative because uh, you know, lack of training in just the basics, hostile work environment, things like that. You don't see that a lot in some of the volunteers. So that, 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 that exposes them. But um, so we're, we're, we're getting close to, we have about five minutes left. Um, we, there were four, two other drivers, uh, service demand and expectations. Um, so, I mean, from my observation, right, the service demand from a firematic perspective, we see less fire in most areas, but but if your company is involved in EMS, some aren't, but some are, you've seen an increase there. Uh, and, and what else uh, can you tell us about service demand besides just my observations? Well, you hit the, the nail on the head. EMS as a driver is becoming more and more significant. Uh, approximately two thirds of the fire departments in the United States, according to a study conducted out of DC, uh, are, are actually providing some level of EMS care. And 90% of all EMS calls have a fire department touch to it across this country. Now, a lot of those are EMS responders going on a fire truck, 
they treat the patient, an ambulance service comes, picks up the patient and takes it away. I understand that, and that is part of the, this packaging. But the other part of it is when you look at the big cities, New York, Philadelphia, um, you know, Tampa, name the big city, LA, those are fire department ambulances responding to those calls. And those are the majority of calls that make up uh, that, that 90%. But even where I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, the fire department goes on all medical calls. Now, in, in where I'm at in Eastern Pennsylvania, the fire department goes on medical calls. It's an expectation because you need the resources to be able to handle a lot of these calls. EMS calls, accidents on the highway, burgeoning numbers uh, when, it, when it comes to fire department demand, disaster or storm related calls. We had 121 calls last summer in one storm, 121 in a four hour block. How do you manage that? But you know what? We had to figure it out. We had to do it. And it wasn't just us, it was everybody around us. Uh, we had 53 water rescues on a different day. How do you do that? I mean, those are the those are not fires. And you actually right. you might get one fire a month, one real fire a month. And maybe a sprinkler will put that fire and out. That, and that's a lot. Yes. And 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 I like to say the fire the fire service is the public works of the public safety functions. Um, we get called for things that I still to this day, nobody trained me to be an HVAC heating and air conditioning specialist, yet when we get called to an alarm call that something is involving that system, we're expected, right? That expectation to be able to assist the homeowner to deal with it. And it's not something I wasn't trained in, but. Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're an ad hoc plumber. You're an ad hoc roofer. You're an ad hoc electrician, an ad hoc HVAC contractor. And I don't know, throw some other things in there because yes. you're absolutely right. Absolutely. So and then so that'll transition us into the last driver, the expectations, you know. And again, I'll start it with you know my my observation in some of the communities, the public calls nine one one doesn't they just expect a red fire engine to show up? Doesn't matter what says on it. They don't have an understanding. Some don't have an understanding. Is that volunteer? Is it paid? Just as you let off, you know, if you move from a community that has volunteers and they're aware of it and then they move to an area that the model is different, you know, what is that expectation? And what is the expectations going forward? Uh, we're a very needy society. Uh, we, get, we get, you know, called out for lots of things that like we just said, not necessarily maybe something we should be involved in. So how do you, how do you manage those expectations? What, uh, what I recommend when I'm asked that is to establish a very simplistic service delivery model or standard of cover that the organization will respond with X number of people in X amount of time um, and, and provide the service delivery as best as they can. Um, and, and there's some language that filters in around it, but basically it's driven around the number of people, uh, what you'll bring with you and how long it takes you to get on scene. And of course they have to be qualified to do their job. And, and yeah, it reminds me of a, of a fire chief up in uh, North Central Pennsylvania. And when we were doing the SR6 report, uh, we, we asked for testimony and, and he was one. And he said, look, he said, I get it with all the certifications and I get it with the expectations and I get all that. He says, but here's the reality. He said, in my town, I don't have any buildings over a silo, higher than a silo. He said, which is about two and a half stories high. He said, so our training and our commitment is to learn how to do and fight building fires up to two and a half levels. He says, if it gets beyond that, I'm going to call somebody that's going to know how to do that. 
I'm going to train my people for the risks that they're going to be facing, whether it's going to be a farm risk or a town risk or commercial building or a single family dwelling or an apartment building. That's what I'm going to train my people to. And we're going to do the best job we can. And we're going to get a fire truck to get place in 10 minutes or 12 minutes. I don't remember what the number was, but he gave a number. He says that we're going to do the best job we can. His elected officials bought that. His town funded him to that level. And he's very successful in what he does. But he used a risk-based approach to manage all of those four factors that would get him to a solution for his community. So, so we, we, we crammed a lot in in our, our, our time together. Uh, obviously, right, these things can go in many, many directions and many discussions. Um, but I, I, do you have any final thoughts uh, before we close out? Um, you know, from my perspective, the fire service, I, you know, I guess it's my pragmat pragmatism, right? We're in trouble long over the long term if we don't figure it out and pay attention. I, I just fear some areas are not paying attention and we're gonna react when it's too late. And, and, and communities are gonna be held to the holding that tax increase. Like, where did that come from? Because we on our side of the fence on the fire side didn't prepare, didn't, didn't own that we have this dilemma. And, and, and we, we, you know, it, it's gonna go, it, it'll, it'll correct itself. So um, your, your final thoughts. Well, I think that everyone needs to understand that change is coming. And the change is coming because people aren't able to volunteer, people are moving, people aren't sustainable in the system. And some kind of modifications to your organization are coming. When? It's hard to tell. But you can't wait for that change to occur. You have to recognize that it's going to change. You have to be monitoring it. And you have to build the plan. And the plan has to be a couple of years ahead of where you're going to end up. So that if you're going to have, and I'll just use this as an example. If you're going to work toward a four-person system, volunteer or maybe some paid, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a region. How much is that going to cost you? Where are you going to deploy to? What resources are you going to need? And how do you make that happen? And that plan ought to be started now, not two and a half years from now, when you can't get people, when you don't have the money, or when the fire and EMS problem is overburdensome to you. And I would give everyone one word of caution. EMS is in trouble. EMS is in dire trouble because of the inability of them to continue to sustain themselves financially. The Medicare Medicaid money continues to shrink annually. The insurance carriers are not willing to give the actual reimbursements needed for these EMS agencies to support themselves. And they're not looking for big dollars for their organization. They're looking for sustainability, but they're not getting it. And that's causing the systems to vacillate between private organizations to healthcare institutions, and then from healthcare institutions back to the private organizations or fire companies. That's very troublesome to the general public. And where does it end up a lot? In firehouses. So firehouses, fire stations, fire personnel, you need to understand that that change is coming. If you're looking for big fires, it ain't gonna happen. You've got and, to, and, maybe, and maybe that's a topic for another podcast, right? The EMS yeah. side of the equation. I think that's a great idea for for another podcast. So, so I, so thank you know thank you again for the time uh, you gave us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. 
Um, I'm going to close it out. Uh, again, Chris Schultz with the Watson, um, John S. Watson School of Public Service. Uh, this was the Edison Soundstage uh, Public Service Leadership Podcast. Everybody have a great day and we'll see you next time.